We are going to be turning today on this wonderful Palm Sunday, happy Palm Sunday, everybody, to Luke chapter 19. Now, I know that's a bit of a sidebar from where we've been. We were in Acts chapter 27. We were getting ready to go to the last chapter of Acts to finish up the book. Very exciting, and now it's like American Idol. We're going to have the cliffhanger. You're going to have to wait at least a little bit while we take a brief detour to celebrate a Palm Sunday and then next week with Easter as well. Now, uh, of very good reasons why we're taking a sidebar from our normal verse-by-verse study through the Acts of the Holy Spirit. And one of those reasons is Palm Sunday uh, is our celebration to come together for the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ into Jerusalem. And so it's an exciting series of events, but it's not just for the excitement of it. It's also because God has clearly put a focus and an interest on this particular week in the life of Jesus Christ. In fact, when you look at just the math behind it, and you take the four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, what you'll find is while they range over the life of Christ, 30% of those gospel accounts are focused in upon the Passion Week. So almost one-third of that portion of Scripture focuses on uh, this week. And if you look at the stories uh, of the life of Christ, if you look at all the different gospel accounts, there's actually only ten of them that appear in all four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All the gospels together have ten of the same stories, different tellings from the writers. But if you look at those ten stories, what you'll find is that eight of the ten of them all happen in, you guessed it, the Passion Week. And they begin with this story of the triumphal entry of Jesus. So as we look at that, it tells us that God probably, because we're a little slow, a little thick at times, he wants us to actually pay attention. He's included this story several times and given a lot of emphasis because of its great importance. And so it's worth it for us to take a sidebar and look into this. Now, It's a story that many of you growing up in church have probably heard uh, lots of different times. And yet I want to encourage you that as we go through the story again, that each time uh, you can always learn a little more about God's character. You can always get to know a little something that maybe you didn't notice in the text or maybe he hadn't opened up uh, in your heart or perhaps you're in a different spot than you were the last time that you heard this message. And so I want to encourage you guys to be open to what the Holy Spirit would have to speak to you today. Now, A few other things to note by way of introduction is this is not the first time Jesus has entered into the city of Jerusalem. What you see is through his life, he has been to Jerusalem uh, many times. But this is the first time that he openly acknowledges. In fact, it would actually seem he arranges his kingship. This is the first time he is going to come in and openly declare that I am the Messiah, I am the King of Kings, and the Lord of Lords spoken about in the Old Testament. And so he's opening up to this praise now and accepting the praise of the people. All the other times when people wanted to praise him and worship him, what did he say? Don't tell anybody. (laughs) Be quiet about it. My time has yet to come is what he would tell them. And he was speaking, looking forward to this particular time. Now, we're going to see a couple different themes as we go through Scripture. We're going to pick up in verse 29 of Matthew 19. And the first of the themes is prophetic Fulfillment. There, I got it out. So we're going to notice prophetic fulfillment taking place. As we begin in chapter 19, verse 29. And it came to pass that when he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany, at the mount called Olivet, that he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village opposite you, where as you enter you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. 
And if anyone asks you, why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to him, because the Lord has need of it. So, verse 32, those who were uh, sent went their way and found it just as he said to them. But as they were loosing the colt, the owners of it said, why are you loosing the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of him. In verse 35, then they brought him to Jesus, and they threw their own clothes on the colt, and they set Jesus on him. And, when he, and as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. And then as he was drawing, uh, now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, saying, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Verse 41, and now as he drew near, he saw the city and he wept over it, saying, if you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things which make for your peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. And so we have the story from Luke's gospel of the triumphal entry. And the first theme, as I mentioned, is one of a prophetic fulfillment. Why is this important for us to study? Well, to begin with, we look at the, the first prophetic fulfillment, which was from Zechariah chapter 9, uh, verse 9. And as I turn back that direction, let me just uh, remind you that there are over 300 uh, prophetic fulfillments that Jesus fulfilled in his first coming. That's an astounding number. When you look through the Old Testament, over 300 different prophecies spoken of him that he fulfilled. Now, if you think about the sheer odds of this, in fact, uh, Lee Strobel years ago wrote a book called The Case for Christ. And in that book, uh, he said that if you just looked at Jesus fulfilling eight of these 300 prophecies, just eight of them alone, and you took uh, half dollars and you spread them all over the entire state of Texas, and you filled them up two feet thick, and then you took one half dollar and you painted it red, and you threw it out in the middle of the state of Texas, and then took a man and blindfolded him, turned him around, and told him to walk out into the state of Texas and pick up that red half dollar on his first try. That's the same odds as Jesus being able to fulfill eight of these prophecies spoken of him. Astounding odds. Incredible Facts that point to his existence, his life, his death, and then his resurrection. And so when we look through these prophecies, I think it's important to understand how much he is giving us an opportunity to be able to defend the faith through history itself. But in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, this written 500 years before the events we just covered in Luke, he says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so we see this prophetic promise coming about Jesus 500 years before he was even born. And what we see is then incredible faith that happens. Incredible faith of both the disciples and of the people that were surrounding this story. And what I mean by that is Jesus gives a word to these men and he says, I want you to go and I want you to find a, a colt. It's tied up. And I want you to loose it. I want you to bring it to me. 
Now, that we read and we just pass over it. Do, do you realize this would be like the Lord telling you, giving you a word to go up to Pilsen's, right up here on the corner of uh, 130 and Route 16, and there's going to be keys in a brand new pickup truck. I want you to go, I want you to start it, and I want you to bring it here to me. And you go, okay, feels like I'm going to jail. But if that's what the Lord tells me, right? And, and so this is what the Lord tells him to do. And so you know the guys had that look on their face, which is why Jesus says, if anybody asks you, you tell them the Lord has need of him. All right, that sounds like the worst plan ever. So when they ask me why I hop in the brand new truck and start it, I'm going to tell them the Lord has need of it. They're going to probably take me down right in the parking lot. And yet, look at the incredible faith. These guys go, and what do they find? The colt is there exactly where Jesus said it would be. And so they lose the colt. And he'd given them this word to share with the owner because he knew they were going to ask. And the owner asks, and they say, the Lord has need. And then look at the response of the owner. You're not going to see it in the text. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? He didn't have a response. Why? Because he believed the word of the Lord. Exactly as Jesus said it would happen. And you think about the faith, not only of these men to do what God said to go do, but this man who owns this brand new vehicle, this colt, to just let it go because he, he let it go back to the Lord. And so I think of the incredible faith that it takes to just operate and fulfill this little piece of the story, and then it makes me wonder, how often do I take God at his word? How often do I question him if he really is going to see this thing through, if he's really going to be faithful in his word? And yet over and over again, he is. <laughs> the one that changes and flops all around, that's me. And so we see the Lord is faithful. He gives these guys the faith to go do it, and then he, he, he sees their faith all the way through to the end of the story. So they bring the colt back to Jesus. Now then the next thing that we notice that is fulfilled is prophetic from Psalm chapter 118. And here in Psalm 118, verse 24, it's, it reads, This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Someone should write a song about that verse. Then verse 25, save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. And so these, this crowd, the children, the women, the men, they're crying out. They're, they're celebrating this time of the Lord. They say, save now, I pray, O Lord. That is translated Hosanna. That's what they're saying. Save now, we pray. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so you fast forward now 500 years. This is actually probably written 1,000 years before Jesus was ever on the scene. And the, this very phrase, this very scene is taking place in Jerusalem. And so amazing prophetic fulfillment. But probably none more amazing than what we see happen as Jesus enters into the city of Jerusalem and we go to Daniel chapter 9. So one more, actually a couple more Old Testament spots. Daniel chapter 9 is going to read like this in verse 24. But before we get here, understand the backdrop is Daniel, at the beginning of chapter 9, he's at the end of his career, he's praying now for the forgiveness of the sins of the nation. Looking across the land, looking at where they're at, and I love this about Daniel, he doesn't pray for everybody else's sins. I don't know about you, but I do a good job of praying for other sins. Lord, heal them up, they're a sinner. Well, Daniel says, heal us. Lord, be with us. He includes himself 
into this group. And so he's, he's asking the Lord, when will you finally make all things right? When will you finally clean all this mess that we've allowed to happen in our life up? And the Lord sends his angel, Gabriel, in fact, is named right before this passage to give Daniel a word. And this is what he says in verse 24 of Daniel 9. He says, 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in the everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Verse 25, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troubling times. And after, and after the 62 weeks, Messiah will be cut off, but not for himself. And so we see this amazing prophecy given to Daniel in chapter 9, 550 years or more before Jesus would walk on the scene. Now, a few things to note about this when they speak of weeks. Gabriel is speaking about a week of years. So they would have a, a week of days like we have and then have a Sabbath day at the end. They also had a week of years, which was supposed to have a Sabbath year at the end. And so for the nation of Israel, they were to work six years, and on the seventh year, the week of years, they were to actually supposed to take a year off. God said, I want to give you a vacation of a year. And do you realize they never one time had the faith to actually take God up on it? God said, I want to give you a rest of a year and they wouldn't accept it. And so this is where we get the phrase, a week of years. And so what Gabriel is saying is 70 weeks of years are determined for God's holy people. 490 years, if you do the math with me. Now, in verse 25, he says, but after the seven weeks and 62 weeks, in other words, 69 weeks after the order, the command is given to rebuild the walls and the streets of Jerusalem, Messiah the Prince will enter into the city. So that's 69 total weeks times seven years. That's 483 years, but not from the prophecy of Daniel receiving right here, but from the order to rebuild the walls of the city of Jerusalem. That's the trigger that starts this time clock to when Messiah, the prince, is going to enter into the city of Jerusalem. So for that, thankfully you guys love going through the Old Testament, for that you go to Nehemiah chapter 2. So back to Nehemiah, fast forward now about 50 to 60 years in the history of the nation of Israel. People have sent, been sent back to Jerusalem, led by a guy named Zerubbabel, to rebuild the temple there in Jerusalem, and yet things are going horribly wrong. Nothing is happening the way they wanted it to. And for Nehemiah, he is actually one of the leaders or the, the key guys in the cabinet, if you will, of King Artaxerxes. This guy is the king of the Medo-Persian Empire. He is essentially ruling the entire known world. And Nehemiah is his cupbearer, one of his right-hand men, a, a trusted advisor. But Nehemiah gets word back. He's also a Hebrew. He gets word back from his Jewish people that things are not going well in Jerusalem. The walls are still destroyed. The streets are a mess. It's a disaster. And they've got enemies coming on all sides of them. And so Nehemiah gets this word back in chapter 2, verse 2. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, since you are not sick? This is nothing but sorrow of heart. And so I became dreadfully afraid. Now, stop right there. So Nehemiah gets word that the city's in ruins. He's bummed out. 
this is not great news. He's so upset about it. He's, he's sick about it. He goes before the king, but he, he doesn't cover up how he feels. Now, this is important because uh, it was a law in the Medo-Persian Empire that if you bummed out the king for any reason, it was off with your head. You were done. You were not to bring any kind of sorrow or sadness before King Artaxerxes. So understand when Nehemiah lets his emotions get carried away and the king picks up on it, that's the reason in verse 2 he's dreadfully afraid. He's like, this is it for me. I'm a goner. Now, verse 3, and I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not my, why should my face not be sad when the city, the place where my father's tomb uh, lies waste, its gates are burned with fire? And the king said to me, what do you request? And so I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, if it pleases the king, if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. Now notice this with me. Nehemiah is scared to death that he's about to go off the scene. And yet the king says, what's your request? And Nehemiah does something I think is important for us to note. He prays to the God of heaven, and then he pleads. I don't know about you, but I've got a bad habit of pleading. I have all kinds of schemes. I plead for all kinds of things. Oh, I wish this would go better, and this would go better, and I scheme, and I try to work it all out, and then I pray, God, would you please bless what I just did? Right? That's our normal pattern. I want to plead first, pray second. Nehemiah corrects us in this. It's pray first, plead second. So he pleads before the king to please let me go back and rebuild the walls of the city. And what you find is in the subsequent verses, King Artaxerxes not only allows Nehemiah to go, but he gives him the resources to make it happen. The order to rebuild the walls and the streets of Jerusalem was given right then and right there. Now, at the beginning of chapter 2, we're told that in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes in the month of Nisan, why would the Holy Spirit give us something like a date right there? It was because it started the clock. It started the clock for King Jesus. So if you go back to your calculators and you take the 483 years we looked at from Daniel chapter 9 before Messiah the Prince would come in after the order was given and you look at a 360-day Babylonian calendar, that's the only calendar the world knew up to this point, you get 173,880 days. If you add that, accounting for leap years, to March 14th, 445 B.C., the date the order was given, you wind yourself up April 6th, 32 A.D., Palm Sunday, Jesus Christ walking into the city of Jerusalem triumphantly exactly to the day that God said he was going to enter the city. Now, many of you are like, what in the world did we just walk into <laughs> church? That was, that was a lot of info. If you take nothing else out of that right there, I want you to first of all be comforted. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 that prophecy has been given to us for our comfort, to reassure us of who is in charge, not to freak us out, not to make us all weird and scientific, but to give us comfort. Secondly, I want to note that Jesus is in the details. I hate the phrase, the devil's in the details. That is a lie from the pit of hell. Jesus Christ is in the details. He cares about every hair on your head, every problem you think is too small to take and lay before him. He cares about all of it. 
so much so that he organizes and orchestrates the details to work out exactly the way his word said it would from the very beginning. Lastly, note with me that he is never too late. I think oftentimes we end up in this spot where it's too late. This, this is too far gone. Jesus can't work this thing out. It's, it's, it's over. This whole thing is done. Notice he is never too late. He is always right on time, and he always keeps his word. And so when we see him walking in triumphantly, it is important to note that the prophetic walls have just been shaken. He is walking in exactly as he said he would, amazingly, from hundreds, if not thousands of years prior to this event. Now, on from prophecy, as we've looked at the prophetic, here's what else is happening as Jesus is making his triumphal entry. He is also forcing their, their hand, if you will. He is causing the people that have gathered there to worship, some to cheer, others to jeer. He's caused both of them to make an important decision, and that is this. What do we do with Jesus? What do we do? Today's the day. He's entered the city. What are you going to do with him? And so he's put all of these people together in a spot where they must decide. Now, first of all, how in the world uh, did he get here, right? How did he do this and, and organize all this? How did, how did this all come about? And why on earth would he choose a, a colt as a vehicle? Understand the symbols that he was doing. He was trying to make something very clear uh, to us right here today and to them in that spot. He chose intentionally a colt, a donkey, for his vehicle to go into the city. I think that's important because a colt or a donkey was not an animal of war but one of peace. When a king would ride into a city on a colt, he was symbolizing, I come in peace. Now, at Jesus' second coming, he's going to ride a very different animal. He's going to come in on a war horse to set things right. But in this series of events, this first coming, he's saying, I am coming in peace. He is also doing something else. If you go back to your Old Testament in 1 Kings, important to point out a story from another son of David. We go to Solomon, the son of David. You'll note with me, in this spot, David is coming to the end of his time on this earth. He's getting ready to pass off the scene. The most famous king in the history of Israel is getting ready to pass away. And as he is headed towards the end of his life, one of his sons, Adonijah, decides, I'm not going to wait on dad to give me his throne. I'm just going to go take it for myself. And so he begins to come up with this way that he can manipulate the kingdom and he can put himself on the throne as king. Now word gets back to David, and this is not the son that the Lord said is to be his predecessor, but instead it is Solomon, whose name, by the way, means peace. And so what David does in 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 33, the king said to them, Take with you the servants of your Lord and have Solomon ride on my own mule and take him to Gihon. There let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet anoint him king over Israel and blow the horn and say, Long live King Solomon. In verse 35, Then you shall come up after him, and he shall sit on my throne, and he shall be king in my place, for I have appointed him as ruler over Israel and Judah." Know what Jesus was doing, making it very clear that this son of David was coming to take over his rightful throne. 
And these people knew exactly what was going on. When he rode in to the town on this colt, on this particular day, he was saying, I am the king. And so they had to make a decision. They had to, they had to decide what to do. And yet their decision was to wait. Far too many times this is us. I've got a decision to make about Jesus. I know he's, he's encouraging me. He wants me to decide what am I going to do, and yet we wait, right? And so these guys, they decide to wait. They wanted to, in particular, wait the Pharisees that wanted him dead until after Passover. The city of Jerusalem, in, in just a several-day period, is going to you know, blossom up. This, a couple million people are going to be gathered for the Feast of Passover. They didn't want to kill him during this feast, because there'd be far too many people. It'd be too much of a riotous crowd. The, the families, the people around loved Jesus. He was healing the sick and the blind, and he was awesome. And so they, they wanted him to die after Passover, and yet the Lamb of God would have none of it. He knew that the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world had to give his life on Passover. Passover was only a symbol for the one true king to give his life. And so the the... Regardless of what mankind wanted, Jesus would have none of it. They had to make a decision. Now, the other thing you note symbolically is in Matthew's account, he said that they laid palm branches down. That's where we get this term for Palm Sunday. Now, that's important to note because the palm branches are actually a symbol of the kingdom age. When you look to the Feast of Tabernacles, what they would do is they would build their roofs over their little tents to remember the Lord and what he was done and his promise to give them the land, and they would make uh, roofs of palm branches. And so what the crowd was doing, whether they understood it or not, is they were essentially saying, we usher in the kingdom of God. The very uh, king of kings is here, and we are going to usher him in and his age that is to come. And so here's the issue. He wasn't what they expected. This is so often the case for us, is that Jesus shows up in our life. He wants to do something awesome and prophetic and profound and life-changing, and yet it's not what we expect. It's not in the way that we expect. It doesn't look like what we thought it was going to look like, and so what happens is we reject him. We turn him down, and we say, not, not for me, Lord, not today. I think I'll wait on making a decision about you. I need more information. And so this is a spot that these guys are in. They want to delay. They want to wait on making a decision about Jesus. Now back to the story at hand. Here, uh, Jesus now looking upon the city, looking at their desire to wait, his reaction is to weep. They want to wait. He weeps. Because what these gathered there in Jerusalem and in all of Israel were really doing is bringing judgment upon themselves. See, Jesus didn't need a bigger fan club. He wasn't looking for more likes on Facebook or more followers on Twitter. It wasn't at all his concern when he was weeping over them. But Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 10 and 11, that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. This is not, uh, it might happen. This is a foregone conclusion that every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess. The question is, will you do it willingly while you have the opportunity or will you wait until you've heaped judgment upon yourself and it is too late? Jesus is weeping for the judgment that was to come in deep sadness. They've missed their day of visitation. 
If we went back to uh, Daniel chapter 9, verse 26, even this was prophesied. At, at the 69-week mark, this mark, this time frame that Messiah was going to be cut off, that means they were going to kill him. It was already spoken about, so he wasn't surprised. And yet, as a result, this brought about a tremendous judgment. And Jesus, no doubt, looking at this scene, seeing 38 years from this point out to 70 A.D., and what happened on that day at that time was the Roman army rolled in, and they literally leveled all of Jerusalem. Not one stone was left upon another of the temple. They tore it down to the ground where it stands, by the way, to this very day. They decimated it. And Josephus, a noted Jewish historian, estimated that over 1.1 million Jews lost their life when the Romans came in in 70 A.D. Now you see what he's weeping over. Now you see the judgment as he saw women and children and families having to be destroyed because they did not know the day of their visitation. Now, how does that apply to us today? First of all, do you know that today is your day of visitation? Do you realize that today is the day that Jesus has been ushered into this very place? Matthew chapter 18, verse 20 says that where two or three are gathered, uh, I will also be there. That means there's more than two or three of you gathered. He's right here. Today is a day of visitation. Now, how does that affect my situation, right? I've got struggles with my finances. I've got struggles with my family. I've got struggles with my job. How does this affect my situation? That's great. He's here. How does that affect me in the here and now? The better question is, what will you do about your king and his visitation and about you and your situation? Addressing that first, getting that relationship right first is key. So, what should we do in this spot? One final place we'll go. That's back to Psalm chapter 118, verse 24. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. Now, this is what those who cheered did. They praised him. They praised and cheered and gave him worship. Now, for others, if you look, this is an interesting psalm because verse 22, you'll note, this is the same spot Peter grabbed when he was preaching, and he said, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This psalm even uh, predicts the death of the Messiah, and yet he was the chief cornerstone. And so, here's, this, here's the situation. When our circumstances, which are so often the thing that, that determines how we feel, and, and, and how we interact with one another, and, and really our, our whole being, right? We, we, get, we get so shifted around by our circumstances. This is what Scripture is telling us to do. Praise. Worship. Praise His name. Now, really, that's it? I mean, we're supposed to just sing and praise? I mean, we've come all this way, we got dressed up, we came to church, and you're telling us we're just supposed to praise? Yep, that's it. 
Note with me, verse 24 says, we're to recognize, first of all, that he is the Lord. This is the day that he has made. We will rejoice and be glad. This is the solution. This is the spot we are called to be. Now, for some of you, you're going to say, this seems way too simple. This seems entirely too easy. I mean, surely there's got to be some kind of biblical explanation. Don't I have to dig a little bit deeper to confirm this guy's a whack job? We're not coming here anymore, right? Like that's most likely what some of you are thinking in your head. And yet, I would encourage you to look through Scripture and see what God actually has to share with us. See, look into his character. Note with me that through the Old Testament, that especially the Pentateuch, that Moses the very embodiment of the law, could not bring the children of Israel into the land of promise. He couldn't cross the Jordan into the rest. The law could never get us there. It took Jesus to cross them over the Jordan. Joshua is the one that brought them into the land, that brought them across the Jordan River into the rest. And you know, Joshua's name in Hebrew is Yeshua. It means Jehovah is salvation. If you translate that into Greek, it is Jesus. Jesus is the one that could bring them into the land and into the rest. And when you look at Joshua in the beginning of his ministry, here's what the Lord told him. He'd just gotten the, the group over. They've now come to the other side of the land. The first city for them to take on was Jericho. Double-walled, impenetrable city of Jericho. This thing is impossible. And we've got a bunch of wanderers and farmers that are our warriors now. This thing is going to go very badly. And what the Lord gives him in Joshua chapter 6 is an, an unbelievable battle plan that no doubt left Joshua scratching his head. He said, I want you to go out and I want you to take trumpets. I want you to lead with trumpets and march around the city. Blowing trumpets. This is the worst plan of all time. That's a terrible battle plan. Where's the swords and the spears and the automatic weapons? God says, I want you to go and lead with praise. I want you to look at this impossible situation and lead with praise. And then as they dominated and took over the nation of Israel that God had given to them from the time of Abraham, here's what God says, I want you to send Judah out first into battle. Judah's name means praise in Hebrew. I want you to lead with praise. Now, bring it to our current situation. For each and every one of you have got a battle on your hands, no doubt. There is something that has come up against you. It may be a family situation. It may be a work situation. It may be relationships. It may be finances. Whatever it is, there is a battle that each of us is facing. Maybe several battles. Maybe there's battles all around the borders. What are we to do? If you want to look at the scriptural answer as well as what the Lord has just explained to us right here, right now, it is praise. Go to him in worship. Why gather together on a Friday night at 7 o'clock when there's lots of better things to do? The reason is because we have got battles on our hands. There are battles for our kids. There are battles for our lives. There's battles in our neighborhood, our state, our country. And what we're going to do is come together and praise. We are going to fight our battles the way the Lord says to fight our battles. I want to encourage you in that spot that you're in to praise him, to worship him. Now, that is one thing for me to say. 
And it is a very difficult thing to do. And the reason is, when we are in that depressed state, in that distraught state, man, the last thing we can do is utter a word of praise. You ever felt like that? I cannot get the praise out of my mouth. I want to encourage you to fight through that. Over these last several years, my family and I have taken on some tremendous spiritual battles, mental battles, physical battles. They have come up against us in ways that I don't have enough time to describe. And I would tell you that time and time again, when I've allowed myself to get to the spot where all I can do is praise, I have seen victory. And by nothing that I did. Things that only he could do. And where I would just find myself on my knees in my go-to song. And I would encourage you, just bow your heads and let's, let's pray right now. I would just say, Lord, it's your breath in our lungs. So we pour out our praise. Pour out our praise. It's your breath in our lungs. Pour out our praise to you only. Great are you, Lord. It's your breath in my lungs. So I pour out my praise. Pour out my praise. It's your breath in my lungs. So I pour out my praise to you only. Great are you, Lord. So, Father, we acknowledge your greatness. We acknowledge your goodness. We acknowledge that you are the one and only that can make a change, that can see things in our life coming around full circle. You've seen the beginning from the end. You know the alpha to the omega. Lord, I praise you for that. Father, there are folks in this room that are hurt that are hurting, that are hurting for others, that are hurting for themselves, that don't know which direction to go or where to turn. What, Lord, are you going to do about my situation? And what you are encouraging us to do right now is to answer the question, that is, what are you going to do about your king? Today is the day of your visitation. Am I willing to just praise you? Am I willing to just worship you? I would tell you, Lord, there are times that I have not been able to, and yet you have given me the faith to be able to utter those words. Father, would you give us the faith to utter them once more, to just cry out, to acknowledge. Save now, we pray, O Lord. Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for coming thousands of years ago on our behalf do something that, that we could never do for ourselves. Paul says to in Colossians chapter 2 to wipe out the handwriting of requirements which was against us. To bury them on the cross. They are dead. No longer to come up with us. We have risen in Christ Jesus. Thank you Lord. Father help us remember that as we praise you. In Jesus name. Amen. Alright let's all stand. Praise
rising, eyes are turning to you. We turn to you. Oh, hope is stirring, hearts are yearning for you. We long for you. When we see you, we find strength to face the day. In your presence, all our fears are washed away. Washed away. Hosanna. 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 You are the God who saves us. Worthy of all our praises, Hosanna, Hosanna, come have your way among us, welcome you here, Lord Jesus, oh, hear the sound of hearts returning to you we turn to you oh in your kingdom broken lives are made new oh you make us new cause when we see to face the day In your presence All our fears Are washed away Washed away Hosanna Hosanna You are the God Who saves us Worthy of all Our praises God's people said, Amen. 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 Thank you guys so much. One spot I forgot to reference, but it's worth us reading it really quickly because I think when we wonder, how should we praise, right? How, how can I get to this spot and how should I praise? Jesus says in this same passage in Matthew 21, he says to the Pharisees who wanted them to stop praising, a quote from Psalm 8, verse 2. He says, Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have perfected praise. I'd encourage you, praise like you did when you were a little kid. You know, you didn't think about who's watching or who's paying attention to me. Just let it loose. It doesn't matter if you're off key, right? You think about the kids up here in the front singing. I mean, heck, half the time they're not even close to the key. They don't care, right? Why? Because they're free to worship. Be freed from that. Be free to worship. God bless you guys. I'll be hanging around uh, for prayer afterwards if you need it.